0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Haematology. Two experts in haemato-oncology from the USA, Dr. Nilanjan Ghosh and Dr. Peter Rydell, respond to questions from the community oncology, haemato and CAR T-cell therapy communities. Pre-canvassed questions were gathered from healthcare professionals involved in managing patients with follicular lymphoma. The questions cover... Utilising prognostic factors in follicular lymphoma Evidence for the use of CAR T-cell therapies in relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma And how to manage the practicalities of CAR T-cell therapies in the clinic with a focus on safety This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Bristol Myers Squibb This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME
1: Hello, my name is Peter Rydell from University of Chicago, and today I'm joined by Dr. Nalanjan Ghosh of Atrium Health Levine Cancer Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. And today we'll be discussing relapse and refractory follicular lymphoma, and particularly focusing on risk stratification and some practicalities of managing CAR T-cell therapy in this population. So in terms of agenda items, today we'll be focusing on three main things. First, utilizing prognostic factors in follicular lymphoma to identify high-risk patients and guide treatment decisions. Then we'll circle to looking at latest evidence for CAR T-cell therapy in relapse refractory follicular lymphoma, and particularly focusing on their place in the treatment sequence and considerations in relation to patient selection. And lastly, we'll be focusing on managing the practicalities of CAR T-cell therapy in the clinic with a specific focus on the safety and the multidisciplinary team approach. So for our first session, we'll focus on utilizing prognostic factors in follicular lymphoma to identify high-risk patients and guide treatment decisions. So in follicular lymphoma, there's certainly some challenges that this disease presents. Um, And often the key considerations when we're managing patients with with follicular lymphoma include those in relation to timing of initiation of treatment. Um, Also, of course, there's the conversation about what are the optimum frontline treatment approaches, and also those approaches in second and later lines of therapy. Um, When managing patients with follicular lymphoma, especially in the relapse or refractory setting, it's often necessary for us to do imaging evaluations to particularly focus on evaluating for transformation, um, and in the context of things like an elevated LDH or really a, a significant constitutional symptom, certainly considering a biopsy would be necessary in those patients. The other key prognostic factor that we think of in flicker lymphoma includes those patients that have progression of their disease within 24 months of initial therapy. Um, That's seen in approximately 20% of patients, and we know that those patients unfortunately have a poor outcome overall. When we consider therapy, there are some particular considerations in terms of balancing things like meaningful remissions, palliating patient's symptoms, and of course prolonging their life but at the same time, balancing that among the cumulative toxicities of therapy and the potential impact of those toxicities on mortality and morbidity. In follicular lymphoma, there's a a lot of heterogeneity, and based on this clinical heterogeneity, really the decision decision of when to treat is as important as the decision on how to treat the patient. And cumulatively, we need to really uh, use these different prognostic indices that we'll get into uh, to potentially guide that. Um, but ultimately, the decision is really individualized in these contexts. And so focusing a little bit on prognostic markers, there's, there's been now a number of uh, models that have been uh, utilized in the clinical setting uh, to prognosticate outcomes in patients with, with follicular lymphoma. When we look at the, on the left of the slide here, it focuses on the risk factors. And particularly if we look at things like advanced age, Uh, advanced stage disease, um, and other things like elevated LDH, bone marrow involvements, and impaired performance status, those all have been sort of markers that, despite the different risk uh, stratification systems, have worn out as important factors that do impact uh, patients survival with follicular lymphoma. And in the clinical setting, as you can see on the right, we use a number of these indices one of the ones that I would also focus your attention on is the POD24, and as I mentioned, this is seen in approximately 20% of patients and is associated with poor survival in those that have progression of disease within the first 24 months after, after initial therapy. So now we have some audience questions, um, and I'll be posing these to you, Dr. Ghosh, in relation to risk stratification and prognosis in follicular lymphoma. So first question relates to the NCCN guidelines, um, and we're all familiar with these, and they provide some parameters in relation to both the GELF criteria and the FLIPI score in terms of prognostic models that may help guide decisions when making uh, treatment decisions, excuse me, for patients with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. In your practice, is there one that you particularly use when determining uh, when to start treatment in a patient with follicular lymphoma?
2: It's a great question and, uh, you know, it can be confusing, so, uh, but let me clarify. So GELF is a, a criteria, a set of criteria, which helps us in deciding if a patient uh, who is diagnosed with follicular lymphoma needs treatment more immediately. And uh, Flippy is a prognostic tool. Uh, GELF criteria looks at things like, uh, you know, tumor bulk. Uh, is there a tumor size greater than uh, seven centimeters? Are there multiple... Uh, tumor uh, sites, which are more than three centimeters, is the LDH elevated, is the better to microglobulin elevated, is there organ dysfunction and so forth, or B symptoms. So it kind of tells you that, yes, th- if people have these, uh, these uh, criteria, either the clinical criteria or lab criteria, or even cytopenias, uh, then they should be uh, treated uh, sooner than later for, for follicular lymphoma. Flippy has a different purpose. The name Flippy stands for Follicular Lymphoma interno- International Prognostic Index. So what it does is it categorizes patients with follicular lymphoma into three categories, uh, and they include low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. And the the interesting thing is there are some criteria on the FLIPI, which are also on the GELF. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, uh, that, that's where it can get a little confusing. Uh, one example would be a low hemoglobin or an elevated L- LDH. Uh, you know, so so basically there is some overlap, but the intent for two or for those two are different. One is a prognostic tool. The other one tells you that you need to treat now.
1: And the second question for you is related to, are there specific prognostic models that can help identify patients who are likely to have early relapse following frontline therapy?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, the... In terms of prognostic models, uh, what we do know is uh, for patients who are treated with chemo immunotherapy in the frontline setting, uh, if they are a male, uh, if they have a high-risk flippy score, uh, if they have elevated better to microglobulin or a poor performance status, then they may have a higher risk of being in the POD24 group. But that doesn't, it's not an absolute. Mm-hmm. There are lots of different prognostic uh, uh, tools which are being developed to help identify the people who are going to relapse early. Okay, but there is no absolute uh, thing that you know if you fall into one category, uh, then uh, it's a guaranteed that they'll be in the highest group or not in that group. So uh, you know, the, uh, you showed some in your uh, in in the in the slide earlier, which was uh, uh, you know the Prima PI. Uh, there is a flippy 2 both incorporate bone marrow involvement then the m7 flippy which is a 7 gene signature which is incorporated again to try to enrich both ways one if you can identify people who are going to do really well and uh, and then identify also the group where which is high risk and hopefully intervene in a way that it can overcome the disease biology i think the field is moving in that direction we are not there yet but it's well-recognized that POD24 is a high-risk population. And in terms of the survival outcomes, uh, we, uh, we do know that uh, patients who are in POD24, their five-year survival is uh, really not as good as patients who are not in that group, um, about 50%. Uh, so, um, so, you know, compared to much better, like closer to 90% in those who are not in POD24.
1: Thank you. So Dr. Ghosh, I have a male patient aged 61 years of age with a preserved performance status of one. He was first diagnosed with stage 3A follicular lymphoma. I previously treated this gentleman with RCHOP 18 months ago, and unfortunately, he's now relapsed on maintenance rituximab therapy. Are there any measures or other metrics that you would use to help guide second line treatment decisions in your practice?
2: Yeah. Um Unfortunately, there aren't any uh, specific uh, measures or tools which help us guide second line treatment uh, or, uh, or, uh, you know, or uh, prognosis or risk stratification in this setting. However, having said that, the fact that your patient relapsed within 18 months of frontline chemoimmunotherapy, uh, you know, that itself puts this person at uh, POD24. And so, uh, with, 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 because of that, what I would, uh, uh, you know, do is, uh, first I would rule out uh, transformation to aggressive B-cell lymphoma. And if you have not had a PET scan done or a biopsy, if there is a, uh, you know, very high avidity PET lesion, that's yeah. what I would do. Uh, if, we, uh, if this patient, if your patient has had uh, low-grade follicular lymphoma relapse, then one thing I might consider is uh, a lenalidomide-based uh, treatment with a CD20 antibody because you treated the patient initially with chemotherapy, so trying to do something uh, different. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, there are other options. You can do uh, chemoimmunotherapy again, like uh, bendamastine plus a CD20 antibody. And then uh, there is, uh, I think I would consider this patient for an autologous transplant. There have been uh, some uh, uh, reports of autologous transplant having benefit. Uh, in uh, uh, this group of patients who belong to POD24. And I wish we had tools to figure out what to do. There are some clinical trials ongoing, which may help tell us where, uh, whether, whether one treatment is better than the other, or may perhaps risk stratify even better, but we just don't have those as of today.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. It's, it can be often a frustrating clinical situation when there's not really anything that we have to, to guide our treatment decision-making in this context. And so my next question um, relates to um, my patients who have already relapsed on two or three therapies. Is there a prognostic model that I could use to potentially predict response to next line treatment?
2: So far, the prognostic models we have in follicular lymphoma take baseline characteristics prior to treatment, initial Mm -hmm. treatment, and help prognosticate uh, how the, you know, how patients are going to do uh, in the long run if if a patient has relapsed multiple times and especially if the durations of remission are going down i think that by, by itself inherently is telling us that this is bad disease biology and in some ways we may not even need a prognostic model to tell us that um, you know this person needs uh, some novel treatment or something else to try to overcome uh, that bad disease biology so um, you know the clinical nature of the relapse is often dictating how uh, things are going here. Um, and I'm not aware that any specific prognostic models at that time of second, third, fourth relapse will help us predict how they're doing other than, you know, the the clinical behavior of the
1: of the disease. Mm-hmm. So more so that the, the predictive models that we reviewed are more relevant in the frontline setting and not as much in the relapse or refractory setting. Correct. So in this session, we'll discuss the latest evidence for CAR T-cell therapy for relapse refractory follicular lymphoma, particularly focusing on their place in the treatment sequence and considerations for patient selection. So when we look at the NCCN guidelines, it does provide some highlights in terms of how to manage patients with relapse refractory follicular lymphoma, and there are certainly preferred regimens for patients that are fit and otherwise healthy. And in the second line setting, things to consider would be mustine in combination with an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody, such as rituximab or obinutuzumab. Additionally, we utilize agents like CHOP in combination with an anti-CD20, or also considering even dropping the anthracycline and using CVP in a similar manner. One of the more preferred regimens in the second-line setting may also be lenalidomide and rituximab therapy, as this is generally well-tolerated. In the uh, other, otherwise, in the follicular lymphoma setting, we also have small molecule inhibitors, uh, including the PI3 kinase inhibitor, copanilisib. We have the EZH2 inhibitor, tazemetostat, And now we have three agents uh, that are all sort of T-cell mediated uh, uh, therapies in the relapsed refractory follicular setting. We have two CAR T-cell therapies, including axi-captogene along with tesagen-lec-glucil. And then more recently, we had the FDA approval of mocinituzumab, which is a bispecific antibody. So when we particularly focus on the use of CAR T-cell therapy in relapsed refractory follicular, I think it's important for us to highlight the efficacy. Um, and so the first product that was FDA approved in follicular lymphoma was AXI-captogene or Axicell. It was approved back in 2021 uh, in the third line setting in follicular lymphoma. And that was based on data from the Zuma-5 trial that enrolled 124 patients. This was a heavily pretreated patient population, with this agent, AxiCell, we saw an overall response rate of 94% and a complete response rate of 79%. And with the three-year follow-up, we have a median duration of response of close to 40 months. t like Lucil, or TSA was a second FDA-approved CAR T-Cell therapy for prochial lymphoma. It was approved in 2022, also in the third-line setting, and that was based on data from the ALARA trial. That enrolled around 100 patients, um, and additionally and similarly had a high-risk patient population. t like Lucil in this context produced an overall response rate of 86%, with a complete response rate of 69%. We also have another agent that's in late-stage clinical developments in the relapsed refractory follicular setting, and that's lysocaptogene merilucil, or LysoCell, and it was evaluated in the TRANSCEND study. Um, this similarly enrolled a patient population that was heavily pretreated and high risk. And in this setting, we saw an overall response rate of 97% and a complete response rate of 94%. Of course, all these agents do appear relatively active uh, in this disease context, although it would certainly be helpful for us to have more mature follow-up to understand how to best sequence and utilize these agents in this disease. And so Dr. Ghosh, Now let's consider some questions from the audience on the latest evidence for CAR T-cell therapy in treating patients with relapsed refractory flicker lymphoma. And Dr. Ghosh, what do the guidelines say about CAR T-cell therapy use in patients with relapsed refractory flicker lymphoma, if you're able to elaborate on any real-world evidence to support those guidelines?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the guidelines uh, say that uh, for patients who have had uh, two prior lines of therapy, there are currently two CAR T-cell products which are available to use uh, commercially. They include AxiCell and uh, the, the The guidelines don't help us choose between the two because there is no randomized trial which has compared these two agents head to head. So that's an individual discussion. Uh, but, you know, we uh, both have been shown to be very effective in follicular lymphoma. So, excellent op- options. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, we do have some real-world uh, de- evidence to support the guidelines. And that, is, that was recently uh, presented at the summer meetings in bo- at both ASCO and EHA, showing that patients who received AxiCell um, uh, uh, in the real world she uh, had very good, uh, you know, efficacy, similar to what was seen on the clinical trial. And uh, even though many of those patients would have not been eligible for the clinical trial uh, because of comorbidities or so forth. But really, again, supporting the guideline with real-world evidence uh, from the CIBMTR uh, showing fantastic efficacy with cell therapy and follicular lymphoma relapse setting.
1: Thank you. And I was curious if you might be able to explain the best approach for sequencing CAR T-cell therapies relative to other treatments that we have at our disposal, things like chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and even other novel agents, like I discussed tazimedastats and copainilisib.
2: So this is really the million dollar question, right? Because clinical trials are always looking at, uh, you know, one individual treatment, but not many clinical trials address sequencing of therapies. Uh, uh, And that is difficult to do, so I think we'll need some real-world evidence in that. But you know, uh, it is very promising that bispecific antibodies and CAR T cell therapies have come in the space. And uh, you know, uh, there is a little bit of uh, uh, difference between the two in terms of access, right? Bispecific antibodies are off the shelf. And uh, most of can be given all uh, outpatient. CAR T cell therapy is uh, takes time to manufacture. It can it would need uh, places which are CAR T centers. If you if you if you take uh, access out, uh, then you know then it really becomes a choice and a discussion between the treating physician and the patient as to uh, you know which way to go. Um, but because bispecifics are much more readily available uh, and, and easier to do. And not only that, it is also mosanetuzumab, yeah. is also not indefinite therapy. It's a, a, it's a, t- a defined uh, a time period uh, of treatment. So I think, you know, that makes it also lucrative because patients don't want to stay on treatment forever. Uh, so I think it's a really a discussion of pros and cons of what to do uh, with your patient. But it's great that both are available and beyond this, of course, we have targeted, uh, uh, you know, small molecule inhibitors. Tazimetostat uh, is, is approved. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, and which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor, is also available. So, uh, lots of different treatments available for patients. How to sequence them, I don't think we have the perfect answer as of today, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, more to come.
1: So, now we'll look at I wanted to see if Dr. Ghosh, if you were able to identify which of my patients with relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma are eligible for heart T cell therapy, and and who is really the most likely to benefit from that treatment. Um, and you know, is there a patient that I should refer to a specialist center for evaluation? How, how does that come into the conversation, and how do you approach that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So patients have to fail two prior lines of therapy. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's on the label, and beyond that, I think uh, you know on the on the clinical trials, really high risk patients who otherwise we would have thought would not have benefited from other treatments. Yeah. Uh, patients with POD twenty four, patients with high risk flippy, uh, you know, fail multiple lines of therapy. Uh, I think if your patient is having failing multiple lines of therapy and the duration of response with each treatment is going down, then you know that this patient. Has a bad disease biology, and perhaps CAR T cell therapy might be able to overcome that. And that's what, when you look at the results and see the PFS results or the CR, a complete response rate, you really, uh, you know, it's striking that this very high-risk group of patients uh, uh, were able to get such a high response rate and high, uh, you know, prog- uh, really good progression-free survival data. So uh, beyond that, beyond the disease part. Patients, in general, um, would be able to get CAR T cell therapy if they have a relatively good performance status. Age is not really a barrier. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they have to be committed to an intense treatment, uh, but, you know, a a one-time treatment. There is a a, a time period where they may have side effects, so they may have to be intensely monitored. They would need some caregiver support. So there are some social uh, factors as well which may drive, uh, you know, if your patient is gonna be eligible for, or if it's feasible. But, uh, you know, in general, uh, the important message is, uh, if a patient uh, is um, not really a transplant candidate, they can still be a CAR T-cell uh, therapy candidate. Mm-hmm. And age really is not that much of a of a barrier
1: here. Yeah, I think those are some very important points. Um, and the other thing I would also maybe highlight is, I think the other thing to emphasize is referring patients early for CAR T-cell therapy. Um, Often we see where sometimes the disease can progress during that time and be a little bit harder to treat um, if the referral is not made early um, and and potentially compromises patients' chances of responding.
2: Very much so,
1: yeah. So my next question for you, Dr. Ghosh is, is it mandatory to incorporate bridging therapy prior to starting CAR T-cell treatments? And is this something that you typically do, or how do you approach the use of bridging therapy? in CAR T treatment?
2: So, first of all, it's not mandatory that uh, you have to use bridging therapy. The decision to do bridging therapy is uh, is, is something which you d- make a decision based on uh, uh, looking at the disease, uh, pace of the disease. So, if someone's a follicular lymphoma is progressing fast and you know it's going to be at least a month, month and a half to uh, before you can actually get them to the CAR T cell therapy because of manufacturing time or insurance clearance or other barriers, uh, then, you know, um, you would want to use bridging therapy to keep the patient's disease controlled so that they are able to get the definitive treatment uh, down the road. Okay. On the other hand, if, if you know, uh, they do, the disease biology is such that, you know, it's behaving relatively well controlled. Uh, with with whatever treatment you've had so far, then you may not have to use bridging therapy. But the important thing over here is to identify which bridging therapy you want to use. So, uh, you know, remember with bridging, all you're doing is trying to buy time and control the disease a little Mm -hmm. bit. So if there is, uh, you know, uh, uh, you need local control, radiation is a good one, right? You can also use steroids. Uh, There are other agents which can be used uh, like monoclonal antibodies, rituximab or uh, mm-hmm. uh you know, small molecule inhibitors. But there is one agent you'd like to avoid, especially before collecting the T cells, and that is bendamustine, because bendamustine can kill T cells, and you don't want to kill the T cells before collecting them. So, in fact, there was a very recent article which was just published in the in the JCO, not in follicular lymphoma, but in D, uh, DLBCL showing the, uh, the, the bad outcomes or worse outcomes if patients had received pandemustine prior to collection of T-cells and So, uh, in CAR T-cell therapy.
1: Thank you. What hope is there, Dr. Ghosh, um, for my patient with relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma that's more heavily pretreated and you know may not be eligible for CAR T-cell therapies, whether that's based on disease or whether that's based on other logistics? Are there other novel therapies currently in development for patients like that?
2: Yes, for sure. Uh, lots of novel therapies are in development uh, by specific antibodies. Uh, you know, one has already been approved, mosanetuzumab. There are others which are in development. So that's another that harnesses the T cells uh, uh, of the patient to help you know fight the lymphoma while binding to CD20 or uh, other novel antigens. Then you have uh, uh, tazemetostat, which is already approved. Uh, for follicular lymphoma. PI3 kinase inhibitors like copanlisib are already approved. And then others in, uh, which are not yet approved, but promising. For example, you know, uh, zanabrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor, uh, has shown really good activity in combination with rituximab in, in this disease. Uh, and, you know, there are antibody drug conjugates. One is, one comes to mind, uh, loncacituzumab, uh, tesserine um, even though not approved for uh, follicular lymphoma, the early phase studies showed really good activity in follicular lymphoma. So it, it's been remarkable progress uh, in, uh, for treatment of follicle, relapse refractory follicular lymphoma so far.
1: And in this section, we'll focus on managing the practicalities of CAR T-cell therapy in the clinic and really doing a specific focus on safety and the multidisciplinary team approach. So when we think about CAR T-cell therapy in the relapse refractory setting, we have now two FDA-approved agents and one agent, lysocaptogen miralucil or Lysacel, which is in late-stage clinical development. Particularly focusing on the safety profile of axacell we can see here on the left uh, that this was evaluated in the Zuma-5 trial. Um, and cytokine release syndrome was one of the most common side effects that we noted in this trial, seen in about 78% of patients. But we can see that largely this was uh, lower grade in, in terms of its uh, manifestations. We also saw neurologic toxicity as one of the more common toxicities um, that we see with CAR T-cell therapy, and it was seen in 56% of patients in the Zuma-5 trial. Other common toxicities would include blood count abnormalities or hematologic toxicities, along with infectious complications, which were seen in 18% of patients. The ALARA trial evaluated t like LUSIL, and in terms of potential side effect profile, we saw cytokine release syndrome in approximately 50% of patients, and neurologic toxicity in around a third. Again, hematologic toxicity and infectious complications were common in patients undergoing this treatment, seen in 69% and 5% patients, respectively. The TRANSCEND follicular lymphoma trial evaluating Lysocell in the relapsed refractory FL setting. And also, we can see here, associated with common side effects, including CRS, neurologic toxicity, um, along with infectious complications. So when we look at utilizing CAR T-cell therapy, it's important to use a multidisciplinary team when really operationalizing this treatment um, and specifically managing patients safely. And this really is a collaboration between the authorized treatment center and community oncology centers. So when we look at the left here, Authorized treatment centers really have a a network of providers that help to navigate this treatment process for patients. That starts with the treating oncologist, of course. We also have the nursing staff, the pharmacists. Um, We we often collaborate with our specialty colleagues, including cardiologists and neurologists when managing potential side effects and complications from CAR T-cell therapy. And ultimately, this team Um, is going to be utilized to to really safely manage um, these specific uh, complications and side effects. And that's also done in concert with patients' caregivers, which really play an active role in in monitoring and and assisting with this treatment process. It's important to emphasize that this is really a collaboration between an authorized treatment center and a community practice setting. In terms of things in the community setting um, that are more relevant would be things like potential uh, late emerging side effects like infections prolonged cytopenias and also there is a risk of secondary malignancies with these types of treatment and so dr Ghosh, we have some audience questions that i'd like to to pose to you and really discuss and and drill down on the practicalities of car t-cell therapy in relapse refractory flicker lymphoma and so my, my first question I was curious if there are specific risk factors for the development of CRS or ICANs or neurologic toxicity and other side effects uh, of CAR T-cell therapy. Is there, is there anything that we have that would be predictive? And and in your uh, clinical setting, how do you uh, specifically manage these?
2: Yeah, uh, so a very important question. Uh, so uh, in terms of risk factors, one comes to mind uh, is uh, uh, you know high disease burden. Yeah. So if there is a, a if there is a patient with a high disease burden, then s- uh, the risk of developing uh, side effects like CRS or eye cans is higher. Uh, and um, you know there are other serious side effects as well. Like there is a there is a syndrome called HLH, uh, which can uh, which can sometimes happen. You know after CAR T cell therapy. Uh, so. These are things which uh, are monitored very carefully at, our, at the treatment centers uh, by, by, uh, by a team which has the expertise to manage this. Um, and uh, the, the, the treatments that is grading for uh, each of these, uh, for example, CRS can be graded uh, as grade 1, two, three, four, same for ICANNs. And then, in general, they're managed depending on how intense the, 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 the grading is. So for low grade, you know, uh, often antipyretics, um, and then, uh, you know, the drugs like, uh, and as the, as the intensity gets worse in CRS, uh, you know, the use of a drug called tocilizumab uh, has been uh, a very effective uh, in combination with steroids sometimes. Uh, in terms of ICANNs, steroids are sort of the cornerstone in the, for the treatment of ICANs. Um, uh, there is also investigation such as, uh, you know, sometimes we uh, often uh, do a MRI of the brain. Uh, we also like to prevent uh, seizures, but seizures can happen as a part of the neurologic toxicity. So, we give seizure prophylaxis, but some patients may need some EEG monitoring. So, you know, and if, if CRS or ICANNs uh, become more intense, then a higher level of care and involving some of the specialists you talked about, like neurologists or critical care, pulmonary critical care doctors uh, are important. So the, the treatment is usually uh, you know uh, handled by, by specialists who really know how to manage this a lot. And uh, the important message, though, is for the most part, these side effects are reversible. Yeah. Right? So, uh, you know, even though the incidence and you showed it really nicely in the slide uh, is, is high, the mortality related to these side effects is, is, uh, is low.
1: Thank you. So as a community oncologist, what sorts of complications should I be aware of when patients return to my care following CAR T-cell therapy? And are there any recommendations that you may have for managing and handling those?
2: Yeah, so this is a very good question. So CAR T toxicities can be, uh, you know, both, um, you know, the acute toxicity, which is managed in the, in the CAR T center, and then the patient is going back to the community, there can be, uh, you know, other things like cytopenia. So common one is neutropenia. And, uh, you know, neutropenia can be managed by uh, giving growth factors. Uh, and then uh, there is also lymphopenia which is uh, which can be also associated with uh, low immunoglobulin levels, and that can put patients, these both these can put people on uh, at risk of infections. So uh, you know, what I would uh, suggest is uh, you know, a very good academic community partnership uh, and uh, and really uh, uh, you know, help uh, our patients uh, get back to the community, get back to their treating physicians, but help manage these. Uh, you know, for, uh, for low immunoglobulin, sometimes we give IVIG. Uh, uh, there can be preventive antibiotics, which can be used. For example, uh, you know, patients who go through lymphodepleting chemotherapy uh, often have low lymphocyte counts for a while, which may put them at risk of things like PJP uh, or exhauster, uh, zoster. Uh, and we use uh, antibiotics and antivirals to sort of prevent these uh, from happening. Uh, so, that, uh, the other thing which uh, I wanted to bring up, uh, since you asked, uh, is that, um, you know, fatigue. Uh, with CAR T cell therapy, sometimes there's the inflammation and it causes a lot of fatigue, and it can take some time for patients to get back to where they were before. So, uh, sometimes it's, a, uh, you know, just supporting them through this. And, uh, and you know, while they have had this one-time treatment, there can be some lingering effects which can be there and uh, just, you know, providing that support and reassurance uh, to help them get back to their baseline is really needed. So I think uh, the psychological component of that is also very important.
1: Thank you. And so the next question I have for you, Dr. Ghosh, is how do I monitor for potential infections following CAR T-cell therapy? Are there any specific monitoring requirements that I need to be aware of once a patient is returned to the community setting?
2: Yeah, that's another very important question. So, uh, you know, getting complete blood count uh, and uh, with a differential to look at what their you know, if they have a low neutrophil count, uh, then uh, if they have a low neutrophil count, you can give them, uh, you know, uh, GCSF uh, to help improve the neutrophil count. Um, uh, If they have, uh, you know, also monitoring their immunoglobulin levels, uh, IgG levels often, and then uh, you know providing uh, IVIG uh, support, which can also help them prevent infections, especially viral infections. Um, giving prophylactic antibiotics is another uh, uh, you know important thing. I also tell my patients that if they um, you know get get a, get a fever or come down with an infection, to actually uh, you know reach out uh, proactively uh, and um, so that you know you can intervene sooner even though the CAR T cell therapy is complete, patients are still immunocompromised Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, they may not be able to mount the right amount of immune response uh, to fight their infections off. And so that's where the supportive care is really essential at that point.
1: And so for my next question, I was curious if you would elaborate on what should I do if my patient is unable to tolerate the toxicities of CAR T cell therapy? And are there other treatment options that may be available for those patients?
2: Yeah. So, you know, CAR T cell therapy, as you know, is a one time treatment. So there is no second cycle or any maintenance, at least in follicular lymphoma that we know of. So once they have gone through the CAR T cell therapy, if they're having a lot of toxicity, the best thing we can tell them and it's part of it's a lot of it is on us to tell them to hang in there, to let the team really do everything possible to manage the toxicity and not give up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, allowing the treating team to do everything in their hands to reverse the toxicity and get them back to baseline needs a certain amount of emotional so psychosocial support uh, to get them through that. And then of course after that, uh, you know, if the patient's back to baseline and if if the if the follicular lymphoma is in remission, then hopefully your patient is not going to need a subsequent treatment unless the disease relapses. Good. But if, they, if it does relapse, then uh, you know certainly options are available. So if they haven't seen a bispecific antibody, then I think that would be an option. There are other treatment options which are available uh, as well, uh, like small molecule inhibitors and things like that. So lots of treatment options available, but we've got to get through the toxicity part. Uh, and uh, good to know uh, from the data, both real-world as well as uh, the the clinical trial data, that the toxicities are mostly reversible.
1: Thank you. This has been a wonderful discussion today, and we've touched on a lot of different points, focusing initially on the relapse refractory follicle lymphoma setting and looking at potential prognostic markers and how they may impact uh, patients' outcomes. Um, we do have now many active agents in the relaxed refractory follicular setting, uh, including CAR T-cell therapy, bispecific antibody therapy, along with other novel agents. When we think about CAR T-cell therapy, this is often a treatment which does require time to operationalize. And so we encourage things like early referral um, and really being able to collaborate with the community oncologist to best manage and monitor patients that undergo this treatment. So I'd like to thank the audience for their participation and time today. And also, of course, I'd like to thank Dr. Ghosh for all of his thoughts in the treatment context of relapse refractory follicular lymphoma.
2: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, it has been a great discussion. I also want to thank the audience for excellent questions and uh, in a very relevant topic. So thank you again.
0: Thank you to both our faculty. And thank you to our audience for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on hematological malignancies, CAR T cell therapy, and related topics on Touch Hematology at www.touchhematology.com.